Rod Builders, save the date. On April 12th, 13th, and 14th, Angler's Resource will host the Mastering Rod Building Seminar in Foley, Alabama. The event will feature a series of presentations by some of the biggest names in the rod building community, along with vendors, live music, free food, and even a keg of beer. The event's free to attend, but entry is limited to the first 150 spot people who sign up. So to reserve your spot, visit anglersresource.net slash seminar. That's anglersresource.net slash seminar and fill out the registration form on the Hope page. See you there. All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is Bill Faulkner, your host on the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. And I am absolutely honored and delighted today to be joined by a living legend, arguably the most innovative custom rod builder ever in the history of the craft. And that is the one and only Mr. Rich Forehand. I realize that is a bold statement and it sounds like hyperbole, but you literally cannot walk down the aisles of a fishing or sporting goods store and look at a modern fishing rod and not see all the innovation that this single individual drove. Uh, And we're going to talk about a lot of it, but if you've ever seen a split grip, no foregrip, rod for example that's a hundred percent the result of mr forehand so uh rich grew up uh, near new athens illinois and when he graduated uh from college in 1964 he well i say he joined the air force i guess it was the air force reserves and had a long and decorated career um as a, a, an instructor navigator on C-141s and C-5s. And then I know you you moved over to fighter jets and flew, or you were a weapon system officer on the F-4 Phantom um, and eventually retired uh, as a lieutenant colonel. Thank you for your service from the Air Force. Um, he is also the founder of Tournament Lures with Gary Klein. And so if you know weapon jigs or monoguard jigs or black weapon hooks or any of these things that you know gary klein was using to to win so many tournaments uh, extended shank spinner baits i mean any number of innovations uh, that all came from tournament lures uh, and rich forehand and gary klein when he started flying jets around 1986 mr forehand sold his half of that business to gary klein who continued it but Perhaps one of the most significant developments for me as a rod builder personally, and this is part of why I'm giddy and so excited today, uh, was in 1997, Mr. Forehand published uh, Power Hand Bait Casting. And to me, this is ultimately the manifesto of everything he had learned in a lifetime of bass fishing, as well as really, and we'll talk about this, two solid years of detailed study of every aspect of tournament bass fishing to try to figure out exactly what a rod needed, what it didn't, and how to make it perform as well as possible. Um, he, he's been featured many times. I don't even know how many times, 40 or 50 times probably in Rod Maker magazine. Uh, and most recently uh, in the last year or so has published his second book called uh, Magic Wands and Legacy, a complete guide for building technique-specific bass fishing rods. And again, it's probably the most complete and comprehensive guide to building technique-specific rods ever. So um, I I literally have no idea what I would be building if I wasn't a student of yours, Mr. Forehand. Um, All my casting rods feature your 
split grips, your no foregrips, your brilliant uh, hole through the trigger of the carbon seats, the the casting reel seats as a hook keeper because the hook keeper is always in the way and always rusts and fails. So just absolutely delighted to have you excited about our conversation today. And welcome to the Mastering Rod Building Podcast. Glad to be here. So I always ask my guests the same question. Talk to me a little bit, and I think I sort of know the answer from reading your books, but tell us a little bit about how you got into fishing in the first place. Uh, it was as a youngster, yes? Yeah, I l- grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, till I was about seven years old, and my dad saw the direction of the city, wanted to move out, so he sold a really nice house in East St. Louis and bought a 30-acre farm, if you can call it that, near New Athens, Illinois. Okay. So I moved out to a strange environment, Uh, Strange kids couldn't understand some of the German lingo, but I loved it on the farm. And that's where I grew up, mostly fishing with a little bit of hunting, but small town atmosphere, always in the country, always in the wild. And that influenced me greatly. The small country did. But my dad started taking me fly rod fishing Mm. for bluegill on Saturday mornings at five o'clock in the morning. And we'd quit fishing at eight because it was some private ponds. So I learned all that fishing early, but somewhere along the line, I was kind of a nine year late child raised like an only child. So I grew up entertaining myself, reading for myself, thinking for myself. It was, it was like, you know, though I had four siblings, but New Athens formulated those early years. And about the time I was a sophomore in high school, I had by then built a rod or two from herders Okay. Where you just order the kit yeah. and you build the rock. And it was all fly fishing. I okay. hadn't graduated to bait casting. My dad did some of that. So that was the start. And the love of the outdoors was more important than whether I was fishing or hunting, just sure. being out there. You know, I yeah. had a horse, had a dog, had a gun. I was in the country. But then I kept advancing. So eventually I wound up taking my dad fly fishing for trout in Missouri at Bennett Springs and wild trout and that sort of thing. So he was an outstanding fly fisherman and and he gave me his Wright McGill Granger rod. Oh, wow. The rest of the stuff waited until I came out to Oroville and met Gary Klein and that started the bass fishing addiction. Yeah. So that's kind of the background. There's a lot more to it, but it, 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 whether it was the book or something else. Yeah. Oroville, once I got out there, I read enough to knew I knew how to use light line, six pound test, crappie jigs, and catch anything that swam in Lake Oroville. But I fished the lakes, I fished the river, I fished, and I had a 10 foot John boat that I bought from my parents and they gave it back to me. But when I met Gary, he saw that I knew something he didn't know. And he was very inquisitive about light line techniques. So I showed him everything I knew about crappie jigs and do nothing fishing, which was an advantage for him in tournaments. And he talked me into fishing my first tournament when I absolutely knew nothing. And so I fished that first tournament, got my money back, did well, should have won easily because I knew something that those bass fishermen did not know or understand. Gary learned it. He understood. And then he taught me everything else, all the power fishing techniques. And that led to a sequence of teaching fishing classes in town of Oroville, seeing the problems that young people were having with bait casting. And that led to power hand bait casting because we 
all used to fish with right crank reels. That was a function of bait and slow turning of a handle. There was always a reason. And then I said, well, what if we could do it like spinning, turn with our left crank, the dummy hand, not the smart hand, which is the right hand. And so that led to power hand bait casting. I researched for two years, read everything I could to what was I going to say to help beginners, not the experts, let them do whatever they want. So I did that and I could see the direction and I wrote one chapter on rods. So I researched rods, but I discounted everything everybody was doing and say, my God, all it is, it's a blank. It's a handle and it's guides. Dismiss everything they've been doing. What would make the most sense and why? And so I knew how competition was with rods and split grip had been done before in ocean uh, surf casting. Sure. No fork. I'm sure others had done it. But when I tested, I tore up good rods to take foregrip off and lay my finger there and fish for bass with spinner baits at Clear Lake. I could see the difference of laying my finger on the rod. I could feel a willow leaf turn in the water. which gave you an advantage in competition. So that led to that chapter and the innovations that were there. Once that chapter was done, and then Kirkman got hold of me, he he wanted a little bit more, but he wanted to take each individual item and go through it, whether it's a no foregrip, the split grip, you know, and uh, the spiral wrap. Why, why, why? Why be? Who who were my influences? So that was the direction, but I could talk endlessly about any one of these features because it was an endless amount of time and thought that went into each of them while I was flying jets for the Air Force. Yeah. So if we if we went through them, I mean, was there an order? So just to, to give people a sense, and if you haven't uh, if you haven't read the articles from Rodmaker, you can get them all in this new book, Magic Wands and Legacy. But there's a very distinct uh, spiral wrap setup. Uh, and and a set of equal distance spacing, right? That simplifies and and, and works. Right. And, and I, you know, I should tell people I, I preach on this podcast all the time, like read and learn everything you can, but try it yourself and see if it works. Don't believe right. everything you hear. Right. Everything you've put forth, I have tried. It switched me from retrieving right-handed to left-handed on my bay casting reels. Um, right. I understood why my round reels were stacking line with heavy drag baits when my low profiles weren't. I mean, so your system solved a lot of problems for me personally as a rod builder, and I found them all to work. So, so you had you had the equal equal distance spacing. You had the revolver rod specific spiral right. setup. You had the fact right. that you were using no foregrips. You're the first I'm aware of that started trimming and modifying reel seats to shorten them and use only the part of the reel seat you needed to fit that application and that reel, which you ended up calling the RF light. Your sort of yeah. uh, proprietary way of doing that. You, you developed the the locking wrap, the forehand locking wrap. A lot of people talk yeah. about locking wraps, but you. Uh, You've been doing this for a long time and sort of can prove it. Like, how did those all come apart? I know it was in this two years of intense study, and I know you really kind of broke it down. Was there an order or like, how did that? There was an order. But by the time I published Powerhand Baitcasting in 97, for instance, the forehand locking wrap wasn't done. And so the sequence started with me first in competition and wanting to make rods more efficient. And the first thing I thought was willow leaf spinner baits with high dollar rods that I had in my hands. 
And I don't know, I might have been building one or two then. I built them when I was a kid, then I stopped. <clears throat> so I said, I'm going to tear off. The, the fork doesn't make sense because I never grip up there. Right. So I tore it off. Mm-hmm. And I went spinnerbait fishing at Clear Lake. And I was running willow leaves, which are hard to feel. Now, sure. uh, Colorado is easy. It thumps. Right. But this, these were willow leaves. And I was in a cove. And I was running that willow leaf through some brush. And I could feel it turn over and I could with my finger laid on the rod and I yeah. could feel the the fish stop the blades yeah. and I said oh my god here we go so every rod it made every rod I had obsolete because every one of them had a foregrip right so I said, oh crud I might as well just build it's a blank right and yeah. I'll build a foregrip so right. once my mind got in that mode if I'm going to do this what else am I going to do okay that's when I researched, and it's obvious with bait casting, when you load a rod, the line always wants to go to the fish, and so it rolls the rod over. I didn't like that, and I thought, you know, fly rods are stable, uh, spinning right. are stable. What do they do that a bait caster doesn't? And right. it's the position of the guides. So my research led to Scanlon's patent, and others had done spiral wraps of various forms, and mm-hmm. so I tried them all. And they all worked. And it was hard for me to find a spiral wrap that I could say, this is the best one. And even to this day, I can't say any one spiral wrap. Use a spiral wrap. They're all okay, for God's sake. All it does is (laughs) the line under the rod, especially the last half of the rod, and you can hold the rod with one finger because it will stabilize. It's not going to roll over. So now the sequence started, and it went to how do we cast? We tend to cast two-handed, bait casting, mm-hmm. two-handed, spinning. And so why do I have all this expensive cork in here if I don't need it? And that led to the split grip. Right. And then the, the modification of the real seat came after the book was published. I could see that once I finished a rod, you could take the very best G. Loomis rods that would weigh, let's say, five ounces. Mm-hmm. And they were outstanding. I was tearing them up. Yep. And so I built the good blanks. At three ounces, I was saving two ounces and I could see the sensitivity difference. I knew the weight was a factor, but I also knew balance was in people's head. They kept saying, oh, it's got to balance. It's got to balance. And I'm thinking, you're you're saying it's got to balance in the store where you're buying it. That's not how we fish that rod. Right. As soon as you have a half ounce lure up there or a big crankbait, it's out of balance. Stop yeah. thinking balance. How do you fish it? Do you fish it tip up? Tip up or tip down. Tip down? Yeah. Yeah. Where do you do that sort of stuff? So my mind was going through all that when Kirkman cornered me and said, right. And I said, well, you know, I'll talk forever. But I'm <laughs> going to write right to the point. And they may not understand everything that I did. He says, doesn't matter. Right. You write it, I'll print it. And that started it. So there was a sequence there. You know, first came the foregrip, then the split grip, then the spiral wrap. And all that started meshing together. That showed up in power hand bait cast. But uh, even to this day, if someone says, well, uh, are you sure that the way you spiral wrap is the best? No, they all work. Yeah. Pick one. So later I came to the forehand lock. When in competition, sometimes you get in a hurry to yeah. get you see a change on the water and you want to get that rod out of that rod locker quickly. Right. And you, you're hanging up guys and you're ripping them out. They're right. single foot. 
<clears throat> and he said, I ought to be able to fix it. And I didn't know how. So I started trying different things. I was measuring pressure at guides. I'd load them up and measure with a scale. And I was realizing, God, we, we do so many things just by tradition. And I, it didn't make sense that the tip really isn't under the pressure that everyone says. It points at the fish. Right. And once I saw that and I had the guides under where I wanted them, I continued and I started the locking wrap where I wrap, I'm going to wrap around the eye and then around the rod and around the eye and around the rod. And how does that come out of the rod locker? Wonderful. I was trashing the best guides. Fuji was being very nice to me. I must have sounded (laughs) like an old woman even then. And they were sending me stuff to test and use. And I would talk back to them about their reel seats and said, your new version is wrong. It won't handle certain reels. Change it. And they did. But the forehand locking wrap, when I was done, I knew it was right. And I published that for Kirkman. I said, give it away. It yeah. just eagle says, call it the forehand locking wrap. It sounds like something, but it was yeah. really just a way of wrapping the eye so that you have to rip that thread apart to get that yeah. single foot. And it allowed us to use single foot on heavy, heavy rods against big fish. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually, oh, and the drilling, the tr- trigger that came from Gary Klein. He talked to a friend in, uh, you know, I said, you know, I'm working with uh, hook keepers. The way they are above the real seat, I don't like that at all. They work okay between the handle. I was building rods for Gary for competition for myself and just a few other people. And uh, Gary said, this guy drills the trigger, Rich. And I said, that'll work, except it won't work for the plastics. He says, well, it can't work for everything. Just yeah. do it. And I did it and liked it. And so I published that too. But I didn't come up with that. Some guy in Texas was doing that. I just reamed it out. And even to this day, uh, sometimes I'll drill the trigger, but mostly I do the S-bend uh, hook keeper that can handle plastics without punching through the plastics. It can yeah. handle hooks and it's between the split grip. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, eventually I ran out of airspeed altitude and ideas. I didn't <laughs> have any more to offer. And I basically told Kirkman, there it is. Yep. And then people it would be guys like you. I never defended what I did. Guys yeah. would trash some of this stuff. Oh, this is a fad. Spiral wraps a fad. The no foregrips a fad. The split grips a fad, fad, fad. It'll all go away. And I'm thinking, not as long as there's company. Yeah. Not as long as guys want light rods and to right. feel the difference. And yeah. so I knew, and I didn't defend it. It would be guys like you that would say, have you tried it? Yeah, uh, you think you're going to go away from a split grip? No, right. or no for grip? No. If you use it, build it, and yeah. so that led to the, all the articles, which led to that second book. Well, and it was so it's so informative too because what it taught me was you're right. We there's so much almost like inertia of tradition, or so much the way we think a rod should look, or we get away from how it should 
perform. And one of the things that was so fascinating for me about your system is not only did it change the way I was building the bass rods you were describing, it made me really think about all the rods I was building and said, does this have a purpose on this rod? Does this support function? Does this reduce weight? Does this make the rod perform better, last longer? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so yeah. it's, it's, it's a philosophy that can be embraced. The thing that's so fascinating to me is that if you look at the history of the craft of rod building, right, historically what's happened typically, and I'm talking about over the last 100 years, okay, the last century, uh, manufacturers would do something and custom rod builders would follow. And they would almost set the manufacturers would set right. the trend, they'd set the fashion. You kind of turned that on its ear and made the entire industry. I don't think people understand, and you will never get the credit or the royalties you probably deserve for the fact that okay. I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I say if you look at any modern fishing rod there are elements of what you came up with with this what we'll call the revolver rod they weren't all casting in spiral rods some were were spinning right but right. this notion of no foregrip split grip the seat that does everything you needed to do and nothing else and this this focus always exactly. on why and weight and everything else performance um it's really revolutionized rod manufacturing and so now you almost flip the script and it's not all the rod builders following the manufacturers, but just adding cosmetic embellishments. You really kind of catapulted the craft ahead and I, I think did a tremendous amount for custom rod building and, and for making people understand, hey, there's there's some science and some math and everything else here. I mean, I, I feel like I remember reading you, you'd count casts and stopwatch when you didn't have to change hands with the rod because if you went with power exactly. hand, how many more casts a day you'd get? You were looking at, you mentioned measuring the guides. Exactly. You brought such an exactly. objective scientific, uh, and it makes so much sense to me now getting to know you a little better. And we've had chats where you talked about, you kind of always went your own way and you always had an independent streak and you always asked why, and you, you weren't afraid to do something different. But there's also got to be a little something going on there with, do you, th do you think it's your background? Do you think it's flying fighter jets where you need to have everything you need and absolutely nothing you don't? I mean, we're, it, it's almost like a economy of efficiency and form follows function kind of reaching this, this high level. Uh, do, do you think that's why you were the one to sort of make all these breakthroughs or? No, no doubt about it. You know, we claim credit like I did something, forehand locking wrap. You stand on the shoulders of others. Sure, always. What got me that home? Yeah. And so when I was a young kid with the Herders magazine, you just order the kit and you put it together and you follow right. the directions. Right. I was, I was in following the beaten path just like everyone else. And even when I first got to Oroville, I built a rod or two for fishing for salmon in the Feather River. Mm -hmm. And I did some pretty wraps on there. Right. Took forever, but it had nothing to do with how the rod functioned. Yeah. It wasn't until I met Gary Klein and I understood the crappie jig six pound test and and how devastatingly effective that would be when nobody else could get a bite. Right. But Gary was very good at I'd say I can I can wrap this rod really pretty uh, wrap and this that and the other. And he says no black and I'd say why do you want it black? He says I don't want anything taking my eye off what I'm doing. Focus and so. Yeah. Focus from Gary and focus from fighters. If your mind is thinking about something other than what you're doing, you're going to die up there just practicing what you're doing. You had yeah. to, if you showed up to fly and your mind wasn't 100% on what you were about to do, you'd say, take me off the board. Yeah. So I, I learned that focus from fi flying fighters. I also learned eliminate the unnecessary from Gary. 
And so that's when I started taking things off and only adding things that function. It had to function or it didn't get on there. And, you know, we all make compromise. You know, why do you put a little bit of thread in front of the real seat? Well, because it looks just a little better. Huh? See, yeah. you violated your own rule right, right. there. Yeah. Right. So all that kind of went together. And I always had someone who was a, it was then and still is a high level angler because that's all he focused on. Yeah. I focused on other things. I focused on flying and family and fishing and tennis. And, and it's a world of things out there. Right. Gary only focused on fishing. So we'd go over knots till we were sick of thinking about knots yeah. and the rods and how they fished and the techniques and we, we would learn from the best it might be flipping from D Thomas yep. and it might be jigs from some guy in San Diego. And we learned all those things. And then I'd read the books, you know, it might be the art of slip robbing. And then I would change it for bass fishing and, mm. and teach it to my son-in-law. And then he'd win competition hand over fist because others wouldn't push things into a corner and really evaluate. And then I would tell him and anyone I was trying to instruct, I'd say, trust no one. Experiment yourself. Right. Not even me. Right. Take whatever I've done and do it do it your own way. Do right. it a better way. And, mm -hmm. and if you come up with something better, we'll know about it. Yeah. So there was a sequence to it. And, you know, I can't explain how it happened that way, but it sure did. So what advice would you offer rod builders? So our audience is all levels of rod builders from very experienced to brand new, just getting into the craft, trying to learn. You probably get a lot of people. You've probably seen a lot of rods. You, you've been around this game a long time. What advice would you give rod builders in general? Yeah, the general advice, uh, Kirkman had me come back to maybe two of the, I'd fly back and, and talk to an audience. Right. And they would send me letters and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the basic advice, you know, I would give them is say, look, you can make it as complicated as you want. Don't do that. It's a blank. I never bet a blank I didn't like. Everybody <laughs> seems to have the best. They all function in different areas. There's just right. a lot of areas out there. Right. So don't blame the blanks. Don't blame the curve. They all fish. They all catch fish. Right. I can put the ugliest rod you've ever seen in the hands of an expert and he can hammer the fish yeah let alone take the best g loomis blank that a, a rod that had ever been built put it in the hands of a novice and they don't have a clue what to do yeah so for you rod builders it's a blank pick whatever the function is the technique that you think you need to know and that's why it helps to know something about fishing not just rod building if yeah. rod building all you know you're gonna have to be told by the fisherman what he wants. And then after the blank, you've got a handle. Think how it functions. How do you want, if you use a foregrip, put one on there. Right. But if you don't use that sucker, don't put it on there. If you yeah. if you cast two-handed, split grip is better. Even though it unbalances a rod, it's okay. The rod is always unbalanced. Almost all rods are unbalanced. Don't, I've added weight, I've done it all. So, and then after the, the handle, you got the guides. So I never met guides I didn't like. I did settle in on the Fujis. Uh, the Alkanites were a better price. The SICs were my favorites. You know, I've, all those hard guides are really, really well done. Yeah. The hand locking wrap allowed me to deal with uh, single foot guides. And uh, the spacing came later. Again, I read all the articles by people 
using numbers and this and math. And I'm thinking, my God, why <laughs> do we make it so tough on the next generation to figure this right. out? If every blank is, uh, if you don't have it just right, it won't be good. That's not true. Yeah. I, I challenge people. In fact, I built what I called a, a triple spiral graph because guys would see my rods and say, Rich, this is dumb. It's not going to cast as far. I say, really, I have a test caster over here. And it. what I did, I spiraled under, came back up on top, spiraled under, came back on top, spiraled under and finished under. And they say, why did you do that? And I say, I want you to test cast. It. And you tell me. And I, that rod disappeared. Somebody that tested never brought it back. And I can't forget. I forgot who it was. Well, maybe, maybe they'll hear the podcast and they'll bring it home. Yeah. And he'll say, <laughs> I got that one, Rich. And you're not getting it back. Yeah, seriously. Because it's a curiosity. It should be in the Smithsonian. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of just going under, I came back up on top and went under again. And because when you cast, other than the lure pulling the line out, it's almost slack. Yeah. Once you accelerate off that tip, that line is going out slack. It's not a tight line. Right. And so the spiral wrap didn't hinder the casting. It certainly stabilized the rod in a fight. It The only negative I saw is that Clear Lake, you were, you'd sometimes be catching three, four, five pound bass. It's one of the better bass lakes I've ever fished. And it would feel like a two on the spiral wrap. But mm -hmm. if you had eyes up rod in your hand, it felt like a five or six. It cut down the size because it stabilized the rod in your hand. Yeah. So I would put that test, everything I did, even how good, how strong is the forehead locking wrap? Pulling it out of rod lockers. I pulled them till I destroyed them. And I knew that you couldn't destroy them. You couldn't yeah. rip them out. You right. couldn't tear them up. That's all I needed to see. Yeah. So whether you use three wraps around or two, use something or yeah. four wraps. It's okay. I yep. just used three and stopped. Right. So all that testing, basically trusting my own instincts. But I mean, I was tying, breaking blanks. Where yeah. do they break? Why do they break? Right. Kirkman is probably the best expert there is for breaking blanks and knowing what happens and when and, and why. You know, yeah. if you high stick a high dollar rod, you'll probably break the darn thing. Right. So even that last series I wrote, or those rods that were comp composites. You know, I, I was really fond of uh, the S-glass. Mm -hmm. Finn came up with the S-glass for cranking. It was a little lighter, a little, little stronger, and wonderful for cranking. But I preferred the graphites for jigs and some other kind of fishing. Right. So it, it, it was always a continuation of what we were doing, and then the feedback would come from Gary, and uh, the articles came out of all that. Well, it's a fascinating body of work and um, innovative and revolutionary. And, and man, it was a huge influence on me personally. And I, I know so many others. So uh, I'm just so grateful that you chose to be generous with the knowledge sharing. And uh, that's very compatible with sort of my philosophy is ex exactly like you said, somebody, if I arrived at it, somebody may have already done it before. A lot of times we're standing on the shoulders of everybody before us. So we ought to share knowledge and advance the craft. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you chose to do that. 
you did land on one thing that I want to touch on a little bit because I think you you've tested and know about as much or more than anybody else on this topic. I still continually will have a conversation where somebody will they'll say, I don't want single foot guides on this. They're not strong enough. They're not strong enough. So you mentioned this, but I want to unpack what you talked about a little bit because you have actually gone put a scale on these things. Yeah. And loaded rods and, and tested yeah. what is the actual. And so I'm I'm going to take a quick stab at it to try to help people understand. The way that I describe it is the single foot guides, as long as they're large enough to pass any knots or connections you need to pass, they're more than strong enough to do the job I- unless you abuse them, right? And if you, if you grab all your rods together and mash them, or like you're talking about, if you're smashing them in and out of a tube style right. rod locker, or, or it's, tra- some tra- it's usually transport or abuse that causes the problem. But the, when the rod is at full, bend uh like fighting a fish right like we hope we're doing a lot when we're on the water most of the rod is actually and certainly the tip section where the single foot guides are is actually pointing right at the rod and is bearing only measured ounces of load not pounds exactly only those talk a little bit about that because i still think this is wildly misunderstood and if if you're interested in this topic it's covered very clearly in power hand bait casting it's covered even more clearly and directly in magic wands and legacy but talk a little bit about that because i still feel like that's a huge misconception among anglers and rod builders i think it is and even the the manufacturers that build for Walmarts and stores still lean toward the double foot to make it look tough, strong. Like, well, you can use it in fresh water. You can take it out and battle the salt water. Really? And exactly what you said applies. I, when I was developing the forehand locking wrap with single foot because they were lighter and I could get them in the size six or whatever size I wanted, everything about them made sense that I would put a bit of clamp, load it on a, and I'd load them to the maximum that a reel could take before the drag would slip. Yep. But not not to, to try and break the rod, but to load it. And now take a scale and go up at each guide and measure how much pressure is actually against that guide. And just what you said, when I really loaded it, like you're going to, Ryan, if I broke the rod, I didn't care. I never did. I broke rods outside when I tie it to a tree and I want to see where it breaks. It breaks right. down by the handle. That's right. where it goes flat. But in the garage, when I pull the maximum load, hardest fighting fish before the drag finally slipped, the tip of the ga- a rod would point at the load. Right. There wasn't very little. It was 0.2, mm-hmm. 0.3, 0.4. It was only in the midsection of the rod where I could get up to maybe one pound of pressure. Yeah. And that was one pound of pressure against these single foot Fujis. They could take that one pound standing still. So if you tied on just forehand locking wrap, which you probably didn't need, and uh, and took that blank outside and now flexed it till you broke something, mm-hmm. would you tear off the guides or would you break the rod? You would break the rod. You'd never tear off those guides. Yeah. And I had it medically. We used to take my bass rods to Shelter Cove when I taught my son-in-law how to mooch for salmon. salmon. Yeah, I learned it in Alaska. I fished all my rods in Alaska to test them against big fish. And we were inshore in 40, 50 feet of water, and I was fishing a drop shop, and we're catching three to six pound of bass. They're saltwater bass. And so we had caught a couple, and I felt a little ticket, just a little minnow imitation, all artificial, and the drop shot. And it was on a spinning rod, single foot uh, Fujis. And I loaded into it, eight pound test, fluorocarbon. And I felt 
okay, I don't know. And then the fish started moving out to sea. And then my son-in-law said, you got something? I said, well, I think it, he's got me. It could be a big halibut. You want to follow this fish? And he said, sure. Yeah. And so now here comes the secret that the guys should know. There isn't any fish that swims, even a whale, that can break one of my rods. You just don't bend it past 90 degrees. Right. If yeah. you hold an arc, they can't break the line. They, the drag will slip. They can't break the rod. They can't tear out the guides. No damage can occur. Of course, you right. might follow that way around for a few days. Right. So we were following <laughs> this monster out to sea. And I just didn't. He said, how big is it? I said, I don't know, Johnny. <laughs> you, you know, you're following it with the motor. It's big. And he said, all right, we can't do this forever after about 20 minutes. And it was still swimming out to sea. And he said, put pressure on it and either break the line. It's not going to break the rod and try and bring it to the surface so we can see. So I started tightening things down. And I, but I still, if you have a reasonable arc in a rod and a hundred foot or 200 feet out in front of you, you're not going to break the rod. You, right. We break rods with fish that are right next to the boat and we go past 90 degrees and then we yeah. snap it and right. we curse the rod. Right. And I did bring that fish to the surface. And then we see this big thresher shark tail, six feet come out of the water and broke the line. Eight so it was like a yeah. pound. Thresher shark going out to sea. I wasn't going to stop it on eight pound test. Yeah. And this tail went across the line and broke it. Cut it. Yeah. And so it was one more evidence that guys that insist on double foot, they're even tying the forehand locking wrap on some double foot to, because they know it's tougher. And I'm thinking, wow, yeah. <laughs> that's not why I developed that forehand locking wrap. Right. I developed it to get it out of rod lockers and then. The other thing it did, it just over time guides and rods take so much flex. It kept the epoxy from cracking. It did right. a lot of other things that I didn't know about. Other guys that let me know that's what it yeah. does, Rich. It does, yeah. it does that, does some other things. So I'm surprised that they haven't caught on to it more. But the vision of what you need is still in people's minds. And yeah. if they want double foot they think that's tough salt water you can whip any salt water fish that swims with single foot guy yeah no so, i agree yeah. i preach it all the time but yeah i, I want them to hear it from you uh, a very credible and independent source right um you, you also mentioned a really interesting point about rod failure and you know uh, what you're referring to about tom kirkman tom broke wrote the definitive article on uh yeah. iding different types of rod blank failures it's still out there you can get it at the library at rodbuilding.org it's been republished on a few manufacturers websites just google you know, uh, Rod Blank Failure, uh, you know, Tom Kirkman, Rodmaker Magazine, and you'll find it. It is the definitive. Right. I actually print it and give it to clients when they bring me broken rods sometimes. But he he, he deliberately crushed rods. He, he had high sticking failures. He completely overloaded rods. He did all these things. And, and this is just a, a useful point for rod builders to understand. If the rod is not abused and it fails, if you make it fail on purpose, and like Jason Champion does this at Thrasher with a bunch of blanks with a forklift and weight plates, it will break at the butt. It never breaks at the tip in a failure. And again, that's because the tip is pointing at the weight at the load. The fish yeah. at the load and is not yeah. bearing anything. So it, you yeah. could argue any rod you get back broken anywhere but right in front of the real seat 
exactly is a, is a failure of another type and likely exactly. abuse or 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 you know yeah. poor technique and nobody wants to hear that but it's just physics and it's a fact right that's exactly. that's how they fail if you don't abuse them you haven't stepped on them they don't have a nick or a crush failure uh, and you're not high sticking they're never going to yeah. break anywhere but at the butt and that's any rod that's an ultralight that's a heavy duty exactly. offshore rod it's just the nature of it that that point where the rod begins to shut off and will not flex anymore you lose yeah. hoop strength it flattens and it and it and, exactly. and and now it can with these high modulus rods and the resins they're using these days and everything one of the things that i have seen in breaking them is is unlike a, a fiberglass that might release in one place these high-tech high modulus structures with scrims and uh mm -hmm. you know all you know all these high impact resins and everything they're using when the blank fails it will often then kind of catastrophically fail in multiple places but that first fail is always going to be there at the butt and then it just sort of blows up because the system's overloaded before it can relieve i think is is the best it's been explained to me but um th that's it's a, such an interesting point you bring up because i think we get so we get so caught up in uh, in arguing about how this rod broke and whose fault it was and everything else. It's like, look, go break a few. And if you actually really do it, you'll be shocked what it takes to break one. And you'll understand that it had to be through abuse or bad transport or it got stepped on or it got nicked or damaged. Something had to happen if it failed because they just they don't fail like that near the tip, period. Well, it's for sure. Kirkman did the definitive article. Yeah. But even above that, you know, I'll tell people, you know, my ideas, if had it not been for Kirkman and putting them in for Rodmaker, I did power hand bait casting uh, and it did a thousand copies. Whoop de do. Yeah. And Garrett Klein and a few professional anglers knew what I was doing and, and had the advantage of that information. Right. But for the general public, had it not been for Kirkman, he put all those ideas out there. Right. And it changed the industry. It changed it for custom rod builders. Now they have something that the stores don't have. Right. They can build rods in a better fashion. Two yeah. ounces lighter than anything you can buy. Right. And, and, and just the way the customer wants. So Kirkman, uh, without him, wow. And then he's done all this stuff on his own, too, because he's a skeptic. You, know, yeah. you can tell him anything. He'll test it. He'll right. see. He'll right. see what. Right. And then he'll. Tell you what the results are. Well, and, so, and we'll go to the data, right? Like another sort of objective information, data-driven mind and doesn't have, right. won't, won't be biased and lets the data tell the story, which is fascinating. So many years when we look back, well, you guys look back, I'll be long gone. You'll look back on what Kirkman did for the custom rod builders, for the yeah. industry in general. It's like, yeah. you know, looking at bass anglers, Ray Scott. Yeah. What he did with fishing in general was monumental right. on all the improvements that came because of that attitude and, and what it led to. Right. So Kirkman stands pretty tall. <laughs> oh, very tall. Yeah. And and has a proud legacy. Yeah. With putting that information out and all that he's tested and all that he's done. Yeah. And he knew in the beginning he built lots of custom rods, but they were in the vein of a work of art. When I came along, he said, what are you up to, Rich? And I said, I'm building tools. Yeah. It's got to function as a tool first. Well, you could make it. I know, I know, but I'm not going to do that. I built that diamond wrap long time ago when I was a kid, and I'm never doing that again. It took yeah, forever. Right. To do it. It, do, it, it doesn't do serve a functional purpose. Right. Yeah, I right. want it to function, and that's it. It's a tool yeah. in the shop of my boat when I'm on the water. And anybody yeah. else that wants a tool, 
here's my ideas. If they want the flowery, beautiful work of art, there's plenty of examples of that out there. I don't touch it. And so <laughs> has put both in out in the public's view. But most yeah. people still think of custom rod building as a work of art. As decorative, yeah. Aesthetically beautiful. It's yeah. okay. If yeah. you want to hang it on the wall, do it. But if you want to beat it up and fish it, just build a tool and build it the best. And they, when I'm done with them and guys fish them, they, it's their favorite yeah. tool. Yeah, they just love the rods and how they perform. Well, yeah, and I, I I just think you were so far ahead of your time from a technique specific standpoint. Instead of building all these general purpose, you were, uh, you know, now we see that everybody's rod catalog has you know technique specific rods and people selling as technique specific blanks. As based on my memory, you were sort of the first one that got really focused on that stuff. And you said, like, "We're going to build a rod just for drop shot. We're going to build a rod just for top right. one." And now that's that's very right. normal to us now. But if we rewind right. to the nineties. 90s, it wasn't normal, right? It was casting yeah. and spinning and it was lengths and powers and actions. And that was kind of it, right? And, yeah. you know, so it, it's just such a remarkable legacy. So as you look forward, like, what, what are your thoughts on where the next big innovations are going to come from? I mean, um, I'm hoping there's another rich forehand out there that's going to sort of strip this thing down and, and teach all of us and, and path light a path and sort of lead us in a new direction. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I sit here and I'm saying I'm not sure things can get that much better. But thoughts about where the industry goes from here or where the next innovations might lie, materials or? Yeah. Well, Kirkman, he asked me, he asked me in an email once. We know what you've done, and I've published it. Where do you see things going? And where do you see the changes? Where do you see the future? Yeah. And it is like asking, when when is the next Rich Forehand coming along? I don't know. It'd be like asking me, when is the next Thoreau coming along? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that we need another Thoreau. Read yeah. what the man said. Right. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Yeah. Look at his views on nature. Either it's compatible with how you think, or it's not. And Frank Lloyd Wright, do we need another? I don't know. Take a look at his views. Farm follows function. Right. So there's been giants. Kirkman is a giant in my mind. Uh, and no, mine too. Will, yeah. another, will another Kirkman come along? I don't know. I don't know. And will there be other innovations? It's like I've tested the things that other people just wonder about. For instance, yeah. an inner line rod. Yeah. And, they, and say, well, maybe that'll be the future. And I say, well, it's tough. Because there's an infinite number of contact points inside right. of that rod. Right. And they're the most sensitive rods I've ever fished. I put a half ounce jing on, throw them out, and you can feel everything. But they're a bugger to cast. Yeah. So unless you can make them as slick as what we're using now, they're not casting tools. They're feeling tools. So I right. test all that stuff to see yeah. how it goes. So when I think of what I did to bass rods, uh, spinning and bait casting, and the changes to make them lighter, more efficient, and function. Don't add it unless it functions for you. Right. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be. I know it's not a fad what we did and what guys yeah. have. And I don't defend anything. I let others defend whether, whether it's a spiral wrap or no foregrip. If you use it, put it on there. Yeah. And because sensitivity, they're, they're into arguments all the time about, well, sensitivity. How do you measure that stuff? And I've got a fiancé that instantly knew when I took her a flipping how to increase the sensitivity where she could feel. She grabbed the line with her fingers. Mm. Most bass fishermen that flip don't do that. I know one that does, Gary yep. Klein. Right. I know another one that does, and that's D. Thomas. 
Yeah. And so when you put your finger on the line, that's where the all the little bumps and inhalings come up to the rod and finally into your hands. And she kind of knew it instantly. So mm-hmm. she could feel every dead burn bite the first time I took her. But let me see you try and convince people that have been flipping for years and think they know how to flip when they don't. There's a difference between yeah. flipping and pitching. Right. Pitching is kind of an advancement of the flipping. And that came from these guys that are left-handers. They yeah. didn't change hands and they didn't, they had the line wrapping around so that they dispensed with the flipping technique and went right Started to pitching. pitching. That was yeah. Denny Brower and a few of these other guys. So I don't know what the next generation is going to see. We're blessed with some materials and guys like Loomis, who he's a thinker yep. and always built the best blanks. Yep. But I never I never met any blank, whether it was Shikari or U.S. rods or you name them. I've used them all and they were all wonderful. They all had their function. Right. And Gary Loomis may come up with he finds other materials that are out there and then yep. brings them into the rod building world. Yeah. And is it the best and fastest and lightest? And then, and then I'll take the opposite. And I say, you don't need that. In the hands of a pro, a super sensitive flip stick may be the wrong tool. He would be better off with a composite that isn't so sensitive because if he's, he's only eight feet away from the fish and he's flipping into the bush and they, they inhale that jig, if he feels it with the highest modulus blank available, he, he may jerk it away before the, the jig even gets in uh, mouth closed on a bass. Right. So I was not a fan of always lighter, faster, as better, that mm. the best crank rods aren't the lightest yeah. and highest modulus because you got to slow them down so that it's not jerking on a crankbait right. treble hook all the time. Right. So there'll be a lot of that back and forth of what's balanced and which blank and which modulus. And yeah, it's okay. You know, I yeah. still use glass to crank. Uh, maybe there's a, a fiberglass. I've used some of the the composites to crank, and they're mm-hmm. they're fine. But I still yeah. prefer glass. Yeah. And the graphites that Loomis keeps coming up with, they're with jig rods. They're supreme. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I really, I really don't know where the next innovations will come. I have a feeling we're making reels at high end at high dollar. Mm-hmm. We're making blanks, high-end, high-dollar, and sometimes the lower modulus, you know, whether it's E-glass or S-glass, right. are still the best tool for yeah. certain techniques. There's so many techniques now to what we do. It depends on – it's an obsession yeah. with bass fishing and all yeah. the techniques we use. Yeah, well, I don't know if you talked to Gary lately, uh, but uh, I was just uh, – had him on the podcast. Uh, we recorded it last week as we're sitting here recording this one, and uh, – He's he's gotten his hands on some really almost like the first fiberglass that's entering into kind of like what we would consider high modulus in terms of a tensile strength and a strain rate. And man, it, it, there's some interesting blanks he's making with that stuff. I think he calls it all-purpose fast glass, but it's a it's a sweet sweet material. So to your point, faster is not always right. It's not always better. It depends on horses for courses and, and form follows function. It depends on what you're trying to do, right? So. You mentioned your fiance who intuitively knew how to detect a, a flipping bite. I want to yeah. I want to give her a shout out, Judy Ball, because she, not only did she do that, she figured out how to get us on Zoom today when we were having she did. Some I trouble. I had a clue. So I got to give a shout out. Thank you, thank you, Judy, because if not for you, we'd not be having this conversation right now. We would not be able to bring uh, Mister Forehand live and interactive to the rod building world. So, and Rich, this not has been for Kirkman, but a lot of what I did would never make 
the light of day. <laughs> oh yeah. No. And I tell people all the time, I, I really don't know what I'd be building right now. And I've been a builder for 28 years. I don't know what I'd be building if I hadn't subscribed to Rodmaker magazine because I've, I just, and I tell people I learned something in every issue and that it's harder and harder to do the longer, the longer you've been at this, but yeah, it's just tremendous. So I, I know you would never plug it and it, it may be hard for people to find a copy of power hand bait casting. I know I have a couple, um, so many of them you signed before they were sold. There's soft cover and, and, and a limited number of hard covers out there. But if you're a serious student of the game, really recommend you get your hands on a copy and you can, definitely get as many copies as you want of magic wands and legacy which is this rod maker magazine special publication um and and just a the definitive guide to technique specific rods for all the major kind of tournament bass techniques so rich i can't thank you enough it's been such an honor and a privilege to have you on the program you're a hero to me and an icon in the industry and i just thank you so much for all that you've done and for your willingness to share and, and educate all of us. We we were talking uh, in the lead up to recording this about standing on the shoulders of people who came before you. And I, I just, on behalf of everybody who's standing on your shoulders and, and uh, benefits from all of your hard work and, and uh, focus and analytics to kind of bring us to this point. Thank you very, very much. It's a tremendous honor to have you on and to get to speak to you. And thank you so much for everything you've done for for rod building as a as a craft and as a in industry very grateful well you're welcome i've enjoyed it it's been fishing is one of the great loves of my life and uh, i just you know it was uh, just luck i met a young kid who was barely out of high school in oroville and everybody else his parents well his dad was giving him an ulcer get a job and i just sat him down and i said look flying jets i'm enjoying myself I'm going to give you the best piece of advice you're ever going to get. Go do what you love. Take what you give. It may not make you wealthy, but what it will do, doors will open. You never know. You never know. This is what you want to do. Just go do it. And he said, well, that's, I don't know, Rich. I said, go back with Bass Anglers and Ray Scott and come back here when you're broke. He said, I'm already broke. I said, well, all right, then borrow (laughs) some money, but not from me and go back there. And so he borrowed about five grand from his mom and he went back there and he's never come back. Yep. So <laughs> he's done what he loves. And it's amazing when you love fishing or love the outdoors, then you, you know, sometimes you have a few ideas that you can improve yep. what we're doing and make it best better. hundred years from now, they'll never know who was the Looney tune that did this or did that. No one will know for sure. Yeah. Well, I know, and I sure appreciate your contribution and your willingness to share it with the rest of us. So great chatting with you. Uh, Really appreciate you coming on. And so thanks everybody for listening. And again, pick up a copy of Magic Wands and Legacy uh, from Rich Forehand. You can find that. We'll post a link to it. You can find it um, on the Rodmaker Magazine website. And if you're you're fortunate enough to find a copy of uh, Powerhand Baitcasting, you better grab it because there's not, there's not many of them out there and I'm, I'm collecting them now. So great chatting with you thanks so much rich all right well thank you bill i'll I'll be in duty for days for hooking us up (laughs) all right exactly yeah well sorry i'll I'll try i'll send some flowers or something i'll try to help lighten the load exactly all right thanks so much thanks again all right thank you